0: I stole behind her in the frozen boots and I touched her on the
1: This is our American Stories and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's same bird, old sign. And this is our story of the song segment. And we're not gonna tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, met my old lover in the grocery store, the snow is falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song, made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single Leader of the Band in 1991.
2: If I think I could only have written one song in my life, it would have been Leader of the Band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it my father passed away over ten years ago now, and he he got to hear that song he got to see this enjoyed the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. you know, who is this man, the leader of the band you know and he just he loved that and I loved that because I, I respected him so much. I mean he gave me everything I am really. My mother and he were both musicians and The idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done.
1: And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks because you don't hear him anywhere else. Fogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song, this is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence.
0: were meant for different work and his heart was known to none. He left his arm and went his lone and solitary way and he gave to me a gift I know. I am fate. He tried to be a soldier once, but his music wouldn't wait. He earned his love through discipline, a thundering velvet hand. His gentle means of sculpting souls took me years to understand. The leader of
1: And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories.
0: I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. Thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul my life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. I am a living legacy to the leader. Of
1: This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything. History, sports, the arts. One of the things we love to talk about is courage and selflessness. And this next story by Alex Cortez is one heck of a selflessness and courage story.
3: Chris Edmonds thought that he had a great dad, but he also thought that he had a relatively normal one my baseball
4: coach, so he was very active in that, loved baseball, and I think he loved the kids more than anything. So he was our head coach, and my uncle was our assistant
3: coach. He played the good cop. Dad was the good (laughs) cop. My uncle was the bad cop, so to speak. Chris's dad served in World War II. He had a diary from his time there, although he didn't say much about it or the war. And so Chris didn't know much of anything, until... My daughter,
4: who was in college at the time, had done a group report for one of her history classes on dad and had used the diary as some of the narrative for a a little short video that they made. And as I watched that video, they just used, the narration was was just word for word out of dad's diary. And it was just, I'd read it before and I'd asked dad when he was living, about his experience, he just never would, would share. Like most, most men of that day, I mean, he said, son, there's some things I'd rather not talk about. But those words just kind of seared into my heart and moved me. And so one night, about midnight, a friend of mine said, you know, they have records, military records on, on people who have served, so maybe you can find out some, some things about your dad. So I was moved by those words, and I also wanted to kind of find out just some basics you know when did he enter the service was it before Pearl Harbor was it after Pearl Harbor what units was he assigned to where did he do his basic training I mean I didn't know any of that stuff so I just googled his name and rank on the computer about midnight one night and the first link that comes up which I thought would be maybe the the National Archives or an army site or you know some military site, um, it was the New York Times and Dad's name and rank, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, was embedded in this article that was written in 2008 by the editor. And it was written kind of reflecting back on the story of President Nixon stepping down from the presidency and moving back to New York. And the, the article was titled, Richard Nixon's Search for a New York Home. And so immediately i mean that's highlighted dad's name's highlighted and and i click on the article i'm thinking what is dad's name doing in this article in new york times and what does that have to do with president nixon you know i'm like this is crazy so i read the article and it's basically telling the story of how the president wanted to move to new york and no one wanted him to be their neighbor nobody could find him any place to live i think mr rudin was was kind of the donald trump of the day he was the big real estate model, He couldn't even find a place for the president to move because nobody wanted him. And it goes on to say that a gentleman felt sorry for the president, basically, and offered to sell his townhouse, which was in a very prominent section of New York, to the president. And the president ends up visiting with all of his family and buying it from him. And so in the context of that story, the reporter just asked this gentleman who happened to be Lester Tanner about his life and found out he served in the military and asked about that. And and basically, in the context of that conversation, Lester said, had it not been for the bravery of my Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, um, I wouldn't be here to do what I did. So, I read that and I was like, who is Lester Tanner? What did Dad do that was so brave? Or Lester's basically saying, I owe my life to my Master Sergeant.
3: The New York Times left this stunning revelation as a one paragraph mention in their article, almost as if it was an off-topic side story that they had just forgotten to take out in their editing process. I mean, you, you would think someone
4: would have read that and go, well, who is this Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds? Let's go try to find out
3: who this guy was. And if it would be anyone, you'd think it would be the same publication. That the New York Times would be excited that they might have just stumbled upon a great story.
4: Well, that has crossed my mind many
3: times is, you know, why did they just kind of leave that, you know, for dead, basically? Just left it alone. Thankfully, it wasn't uninteresting. To Chris. And so he decided to take their job and play reporter. So I began looking for Lester. Been
4: searching for him and tracked him down finally. It it took me about three or four months. Finally found a phone number and was able to call him and talk to him for the first time.
3: And here's what Lester told him.
4: It was 1944, the 106th Infantry Division had landed in France, some 90 days after D-Day. So the division consisted of the 422nd Regiment, the 423rd, and the 424th Regiments, and Dad was in the 422nd, and it was wintertime, so they began a difficult journey across France. But the winter was brutal that year, It's one of the worst on record in Germany and in Europe when they reached the Chennai Eiffel, which is just kind of a rugged mountain range in Belgium near the German border, they got there on December 10th. And the soldiers took up their places along that 26-mile front, which was really a thin line of Allied troops protecting that area. And Dad's regiment took the forward position. So when the Germans came through, Dad and his men were at the point of the spear. So they took the first brunt of that heavy assault. And then on the 16th, the 422nd was the first to be surprised by the massive German assault. The Germans had 400,000 troops amassed in that area, 1,600 artillery guns, and 1,200 tanks. And the Allied force, mostly Americans, they had rifles and a little bit of artillery, maybe a few tanks, but they didn't have that kind of firepower. Plus, the 422nd had not seen action, so they were green. So the Battle of the began. The Allied forces, they were just greatly outnumbered and outmatched. Dad's regiment was quickly cut off, surrounded, but they continued to fight with all they had. But most of the 422nd were either killed or captured. Dad in his diary speaks of stepping outside for a moment and a bullet was by his head and embedding into the building just two inches above his head. And he basically said, you know, uh, I really thank God that that he spared me. And then later that day, I mean, the battle broke open and Dad and several other men had formed a convoy and was sent by the colonel to try to punch a way out. They thought they'd found a way out and they actually got stopped because the front jeep hit a mine and exploded and blew everybody out of the jeep and they stopped to help and then they were quickly surrounded. He also was ultimately captured along with more than 20,000 GIs during the battle. and The men of the 422nd were stripped of their winter clothes. They were forced to march some 50 kilometers over rugged icy terrain to Karelstein, Germany, where they were loaded on the train. They spent the first night in a churchyard in Blayoff, Germany, where the men, they, they basically slept on top of each other in order to stay warm and not freeze to death. So they They slept in pyramids on top of each other there were several men who couldn't march and if you didn't march you didn't last and so uh, the ones who couldn't make it uh, were shot or left for dead and so they were locked in overcrowded box cars at the train station standing room only no food no water no way out these trains were unmarked my personal opinion is they were unmarked on purpose they should have had a red cross on the top of the trains to signify to any of the Allied Air Forces that this was a POW train, but they didn't. So all the American boys spent seven harsh days, really, between walking and riding in trains, freezing weather, traveling to Stalag 9B, Bad Orb. It was their first POW camp. And they arrived there on Christmas Day. Of course, at Bad Orb, it was one of the worst, if not the worst, German POW camps. There were thousands of American GIs crammed into that camp They were there for about four weeks, and Dad and the other NCOs... Non-commissioned officers. Were taken, and they were sent to Stalag 98, Ziegenhain. So it's at Ziegenhain where Dad became the highest-ranking American soldier there, he was responsible for all the Americans in that camp.
3: 1,272 Americans. And what would he do or not do How would he lead or not lead all of these men? That story after the break.
1: And we continue with the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds.
3: To learn how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds led these men, most of whom he had never met before they were in prison together, and how he saved Lester Tanner's life, we hear from the person who has a brother because of him,
5: Lester's sister, Corinne. The Germans announced the night before to have all the Jewish prisoners all lined up in the front, and they wanted them all to step out. And the next morning, Roddy Edmonds had all the American soldiers that were under his command to come out in front of the barracks. So there was a large group, close to a 1,000 soldiers, lined up in military formation in front. And when the German commander came out, He looked at the group, and he said to Roddy, well, they all can't be Jews.
3: About 200 of them were. The other 1,072 soldiers weren't.
5: So Roddy said, we are all Jews here. And he was shocked, the commander, and he put the gun next to Roddy's forehead, next to his head, and he said to him, if you don't... Have all the Jewish soldiers step out now. Then I will kill you right here. And Roddy stood there, and there was a silence. And Roddy said, according to the Geneva Convention, if a soldier is captured, he is only to, to give his name, his rank, and his serial number. And then he said... If you kill me now, you have to kill all of us, because we all know who you are, and when the war is over, you will be tried as a war criminal. And when he heard that, the German commander, he just walked away.
3: Her brother Lester, a Jew, Survived that day along with the other Jews and was able to come home because of Roddy Edmonds and his courage, his willingness to sacrifice his own life for the lives of others, others who weren't of his same faith. Roddy was a Christian. Lester comes home and one day he invites a friend from the war, Paul Stern, over to their family's home.
5: He came over and my mother had set out the table for them and they, they had lost so much weight, both of them. She had pastries and milk for them to drink and I was in another room and when I came out, he tells the story. Paul does. The French doors opened, he said, and she came out, his sister, and I came out, and I met him for the first time, and he said I fell in love with her immediately, and I always added, well, I, I wasn't so sure <laughs> immediately.
3: And as you probably guessed by now, this wouldn't be the only time that Paul and Corinne would meet.
5: But uh, that was Paul's story. Two years later, we were married.
3: Corinne was able to marry the love of her life because Roddy saved Lester's life, allowing Lester to do something so simple as bring his friend Paul into their home. And then this story gets even stranger.
5: A very interesting part was that when my granddaughter... Diana was in college. One of her classes, she had to do a project, something concerning a hero of hers. And it was also a program run by a World War II veteran, was a professor. And he wanted, if they had any information or anything related to that. So she had written this report. It was titled, My Grandpa Went to War. So that's when he really started to talk. He didn't really discuss it with the children or grandchildren.
3: Or with his wife, Corinne, for that matter. But his granddaughter opened him up. Maybe he did it just to help her. Or maybe enough time had passed and he was ready.
5: So we had that report. And in that report, he finally did come through with everything and tell the story. The story that
3: he, too was saved by Roddy Edmonds.
5: He said that confrontation only lasted a few moments when it actually happened at the POW camp, but he would remember it the rest of his life.
3: And this was also the very first moment that Corinne learned that her brother Lester was saved by Roddy. Neither of them told the story to anyone Their family only learned of it because of a granddaughter's school project and the world only learned of it because Lester sold his house to Richard Nixon.
5: You know, in my readings during the years, I came upon the quote that said, if you save one life, if you save one life, you save the world. It's very meaningful because if you really think about it in depth, the fact that he saved these Jewish soldiers, they would have never married. They would have never had children, grandchildren. And my brother has great-grandchildren. I have five grandchildren. No great-grandchildren yet. But when you really think about it, it has a lot of depth to it, and you realize all the people that would have never been here that have produced and have done great things in the world after that
3: and to close back to roddy's son chris on the animating force in his dad's life that led him to do what he did he was very active in the local church but he was also active in
4: a singing ministry that he had it was just a he never made any money at it but he he sang at a lot of revivals and a lot of church functions there's one song in particular that I'd heard him sing several times, and it's not a widely known song, but it is a song that he sang several times, and typically he would give a word of testimony before he sang any song he would, but particularly on this one. He would let everybody know he was in World War II, he was a POW, and that's where he felt called to sing for God, because he he was a man of faith, even as a young man. You know, he surrendered his life to Christ as a teenager. He never told me any of this either. I've just been picking this up through my research and, and talking with folks that knew him growing up. So he came to Christ as a teenager, and he was the real deal. I mean, it, he really followed Christ. I think that's why he stood up for his men in that camp. It, it was a sense of duty as, as being their, their leader, but it was also he had surrendered his life to Christ, and he had already died to Christ and come alive to him, and he, he believed in his heart and his mind. He was never going to die anyway. If he leaves this planet, he's going to go to a better life to be, live with his Lord. And so um, he was going to do what was right. He's going to do what God would do. He's going to stand up for his men, and in the face of death, I mean, he'd already died, so you can't do anything more to him, so I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. But this song is uh, called I'm a Private in the Army of the Lord. I'll just read you a couple of lines to it. Verse one is, I have just enlisted in the service of my king, Christ my Lord and King, blessed Lord and King. Tis a royal service, and with gladness now I sing as I march against old Satan's war. Jesus is my captain, and he leads me all the while, leads me all the while, leads me all the while. I am not a hero, but I'm in that rank and file. I'm a private,
1: in the army of the lord and great work alex and thank you to everyone who contributed to this remarkable story master sergeant roddy edmund's story all of the lives he saved my goodness all the lives he saved here on our american stories
0: I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I'm a soldier in the army. I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I'm a soldier in the army. I'm a soldier Soldier in the the army army of of the Lord. Lord. I'm I'm a soldier.
1: This is Our American Stories and you were listening to Lyle Lovett singing I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord and no one knows better about that cross, that intersection between country music, gospel music and roots music better than Lyle Lovett and what a beautiful rendition of that song. We'd heard the lyrics earlier and we're going to continue telling the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds because it doesn't stop where we left off. On January 27, 2016, Edmonds and three others were posthumously honored at the Israeli Embassy in Washington, D.C. The occasion, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the four that were honored had all been declared righteous among the nations, a high honor from Israel's Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, to non-Jews who saved the lives of Jews during the Holocaust. The last two segments, we learned how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmund saved around 200 Jews. And the others that were honored at this ceremony, well, they did just the same. One that was honored, Lois Gundon of Goshen, Indiana. She volunteered in 1941 to work for the Mennonite Central Committee in southern France as an English tutor. She established a children's home that became a safe haven for Jewish children, children she convinced the parents of to part with, or that she helped to smuggle out of the country to a nearby internment camp. Lois protected these children from the hostile French police, and she was eventually detained by Germans. She was released in 1944 as part of a prisoner exchange program. And other honorees, Valerie and Mirella Zabeski. They were a Polish couple who safeguarded the daughter of a Jewish woman hunted by Nazis after fleeing the ghetto. President Obama was at this ceremony to honor these people. So was Steven Spielberg, and these are real heroes, folks. And Spielberg, the director of the acclaimed movie Schindler's List, about Oscar Schindler, who saved 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. Spielberg is also the founder of the USC Shoah Foundation, which has created an archive of over 55,000 video testimonies of survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And we're working with them and bringing so many of the stories they have there onto our airwaves for all of you to hear. But the best speech of them all that day came from Israel's ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer. He had these words to share with the people there
6: the Holocaust poses two difficult questions for all of us. Questions that challenge both our faith in God and our faith in man. First, how could a compassionate God allow the Holocaust to happen? Second, how could seemingly civilized societies produce so many individuals who could perpetrate such horrific crimes? In trying to grapple with these two questions, perhaps we should consider two other questions, two much older questions. They are two questions recorded in the Bible. They are the first question asked by God and the first question asked by man. After Adam and Eve disobey God in the Garden of Eden, we read that they hide in shame as they hear God's voice. Ayeka, where are you? God asks. The sages of the Jewish people teach us that where are you is not a question God is asking for his sake. It's a question God is asking for our sake. It is a question meant to spur introspection, to instill in us an appreciation that we are moral agents in the world, that we, are responsible for the moral choices we make. Ladies and gentlemen, the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust were not the victims of an earthquake, a hurricane, or some other random natural disaster that would understandably turn our eyes to the heavens for answers. The six million Jews killed in the Holocaust were murdered by other human beings by human beings who had a choice. So perhaps the question, where are you, Ayeka, a question that so many asked God during the Holocaust and which so many of us have been asking God ever since is not a question for us to ask God, but a question for God to ask us. Where was man during the Holocaust? Where was the moral compass of the millions who simply look the other way as the Nazis and their army of willing executioners perpetrated such monstrous evil. Rather than honestly confront this damning question, people instead tried to excuse their inaction. Too often they justified their failure to accept our moral obligations to one another by hiding behind. Another question. They answered the first question asked by God in the Bible with the first question asked by man in the Bible. It was the question asked by Cain after murdering Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Ladies and gentlemen, we are all here tonight to honor four people who were their brother's keeper. We are all here to honor four brave individuals who saw their actions, not as an act of courage, but as their most fundamental moral obligation to their fellow man. And that is precisely what makes them true heroes. They are heroes, not simply because they had an answer to Cain's question. They are heroes, because they had an answer to God's question. To the question, Ayeka, where are you? These four had an answer. In an age of so much indifference, they acted. In an age of so much cowardice, they were courageous. In an age of so much darkness, they were a source of light. So in honoring these four righteous souls tonight, let us not only recognize their remarkable heroism. Let us hope that their light will inspire us to live our lives so that we too will be able to give the right answers to those timeless questions. And in so doing, build a better future for all humanity.
1: And such beautiful, such eloquent words. And thank you, Ambassador Dermer, for those words. And as we've learned in the Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey story, as we learned in the Martin Luther King story, the source of power of these men, the insurmountable things they did, did not come from man. And too often as we tell these stories, we don't give the source the divine-inspired source that allows these men to bring a little bit of heaven down here to this earth. And that's what these people all did. And by the way, among the 200 Jews saved by Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, Paul Stern, Sonny Fox, Skip Friedman, Hank Friedman, Lester Tanner, and we will assemble as many names as possible and add to that list, and we're going to try and talk to as many people as possible. And by the way, so many survivors are now dying off, and to capture their memory and to capture these stories, well, we're dedicated to doing that here on Our American Stories. The men who served with Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds in World War II, like Lester Tanner, used to call him the old man. They thought he was 28 or 29, even 30, while they were only 18 or 19. And it wasn't until Roddy's son Chris and Lester met that he shared with him that his dad was only 21 and 22 years old at the time, just a few years older than Lester. Lester thought that he was older because of the way Roddy carried himself, because of the way he led. And by the way, in this age, when our 20-year-old's are acting like 10-year-olds, and our 40-year-olds are acting like 20-year-olds. This story shows what 21- and 22-year-olds are capable of, the beautiful, remarkable things they're capable of. In his diary, Roddy himself reflects that war is revealing of a man's character, writing, I learned men even better than before. Some were good, some were bad, some were better, and some were worse. He also wrote, quote, When you're in battle, you're not worth much after the battle. But Chris said that he never showed that pain to his family, but that it was apparent to all that Rodney loved life and lived every day to the fullest. Rodney was saved by his Savior, and while they were imprisoned in Germany, Rodney made sure that the men he led could also draw on their faith as a source of strength. In his diary, he had a list of the religious services that he tried to conduct. He had Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish written down. Two of the three were not his faith. Roddy Edmonds' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse, and you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it, and this one's just called More Cowbell.
7: We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animals, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, They've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music.
0: Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me?
7: Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free. And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. Low rider. The low rider
0: is a little higher.
7: But arguably the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit charting at number 12 in 1976. Now you probably know where I'm heading with this. Through the pinnacle of Cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken.
6: After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling.
8: Uh, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, Are are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. (laughs) (laughs) This is
7: one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top, the Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper.
9: Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part that that part, so uh, and we didn't like it nobody, nobody in the group liked it you know, and so uh, erased that track, so I he said hey, I want to do I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head and they're like, and the, the uh, one of the producers, there was three, there was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer and he produced uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation, I don't know, if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why, you think that, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't, the tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it and he's like, He's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know, let me try a a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's it. So it's funny that, You know that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know.
3: But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell.
7: More cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used
3: a little.
7: If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts, stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate, frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it?
0: More cowbell!
7: They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken More Cowbell Duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows, more cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. Seasons <laughs>
8: don't.
1: Habib and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Walniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I planned my wedding in five days, you could too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen.
10: It was the day before my wedding and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely. Absolutely lovely. But my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about. For example, five days earlier, which was a Thursday, which also happened to be New Year's Eve, I was on the phone with the woman who would become my banquet coordinator. Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona, in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her, (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago, and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant. Just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. <laughs> 100 people with five days' notice? Me. People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I am not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. (laughs) No, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, Um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy and he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? My entire luncheon was planned in an hour. Because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for premarriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case. We figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So lots of people ask, why why five days? Well, long ago I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot at the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point it was still day one of planning and i already had my ceremony and my reception site secured wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying would love to have you come if you can make it no gifts just love i then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup and i pulled strings to get performers and an mc for the event so As the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient, and there were a few people who couldn't make it but whether it is five days or five years it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it and surprisingly there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it which is the same rate as any wedding and some of the best parts the total planning time 26 hours and that includes me shopping for my dress and the total cost forty five hundred dollars the result on january 5th 2016 was the perfect wedding day people commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if i had an entire year to plan it and guess what not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers in fact i've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask hey did you notice and they're like oh No, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So, as my mother Marilyn said, Hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, mother. Well, Rob kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? if the answer was no i didn't waste any more time i now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life now that we're married i ask myself is where we go to dinner eternally significant if not why argue over it or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter probably not i say enjoy the path of least resistance if it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, the longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly simple.
1: And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Emily Hartman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could, too. Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. And joining us, as always, is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. And Deb, what a great story to hear, and what a, what a fresh and wonderful voice. I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this, so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it. Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this.
11: Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, <laughs> about planning a wedding that is there to you know maybe has been a dream of somebody for a long time. But ultimately, when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of thirty five thousand on a wedding now in America. Um,
1: Deb, no, hold on a second. Deb, you said thirty five thousand is the yes.
11: average. Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and LA at 44. But you know, the reality is most couples are spending around 10 grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, Your reality is going to set in. This is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show up in weddings? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage?
1: And, And, Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go yes. into the future of our life. And as, you, as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What oh. a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford. So on wow. and so forth. So talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and Mm -hmm. have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where and how we spend our money on those three things can either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a better shot.
11: Yes. They do, and that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson, but also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at, And really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first. And to know where that other person is at and that you're on the same page. Why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly, the things that really help us identify none of us are perfect, but I am willing and ready to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water. Because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their, their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the, you know, wherever you're getting married at and the groom's at the other and she's going or he's going, oh my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at, know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too, whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself.
1: And, Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook, and everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the superior uh-huh. wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage.
11: I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes tape and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw, naked truth on the fact that you have to grow your relationship, and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's if you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help.
1: It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a Tom Petty concert about a month ago, and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us, and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it? And post it to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are. It's real. It's it's crazy, Deb, that the what people are doing with their own lives. They're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why do you want this kind of fame, Deb? We love the we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories, our marriage coach, and she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work, and she's our marriage coach here on Our American Stories. our american stories when you hear that music it's time for a final thoughts and this can be a eulogy a remembrance of someone important in your lives or an american life who died and today we have a final thoughts for you delbert earl fincher jr 86 years old passed away in may at his home in brandon miss passed away at his home in brandon mississippi he was born on november 2 1930 in marlow oklahoma No, he was not someone famous or a person people would recognize, but he lived in ways that everyone who knew him took notice of. At 86 years old, he joined the greeting team at his church, Pine Lake, here in Mississippi, and was there every Sunday in his wheelchair with his wife of 59 years, Peggy. And today we're going to listen in on some of the funeral service. Here is Dr. Chip Henderson, the pastor of Pine Lake Church, at the start of the funeral service,
8: the title of our program says a celebration of life. Hey, we have we have a celebration today because we hadn't seen the last of Mr. Earl. We're gonna get to see him again, and uh, we've come today to celebrate that. And as I look around this room, and I uh, just want to say to you guys who are here today as friends, thank you. All of us have memories of Mr. Earl. All of us could stand up here and tell stories for the rest of the day, and and maybe for the rest of the week. I remember his servant spirit cutting grass at the church or fixing my lawnmower one time. And, and I tell people often that, you know, uh, you, you preach your funeral service while you're living. Now, remember this. You, you preach your funeral while you're living. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, man, that was a good funeral. And I say, it's because that person lived a good life. It's, e- it's easy. Some people come up and say, man, that was, that was a rough funeral. It's because they didn't give us much to work with, right? <laughs> Mr. Earl gave us plenty to work with and so we come today with sad hearts but we come today with glad hearts knowing he lived well and so we we miss him but we honor him
1: you preach your funeral while you're living well said now here's dr jeff holland who followed pastor chip in this service
12: if you're like me you may have thought that this day would never come for earl fincher Earl cheated death so many times that we thought he was going to outlive us all. And I literally thought he had cheated death one more time. This past Monday morning, a week ago today, I got a text message from Pam and she said, Hey, Daddy's declining rapidly. We would love for you to come over and and pray. Mom would love for you to come over and pray over him. And so I went over there, and we got together, and sure enough, he was unresponsive. And I literally thought that at any minute they were going to tell me he's gone Till the next morning. And so then I I get right outside their house, and I finally get a text from Pam, and she says, Daddy's sitting up in the bed eating breakfast. And so I said, well, would it be okay for me to come in and visit with him? And she said, absolutely, please come. And so I went in the house, and they took me back to the bedroom. And there he was, sitting up in the bed, finishing a McDonald's biscuit that somebody had brought to him. And then after he finished those biscuits, he said, where's my donut? (laughs) And he shared a donut and a cup of coffee with me. One of the first things he said to me was, Jeff, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to tell Larry Stege that I'm probably not going to be at my post Sunday morning. And I said, Mr. Earl, I'm not going to tell Larry a thing. Because what I saw yesterday and what I see today, you're liable to be there on Sunday morning. Well, he had the last word on that, and he was right. Let me ask you, how many people do you know are getting approved for serving with children when they are 83 years old? Earl did. 2014, just three years ago at 83, he signed up to serve in our children's ministry sports camp. And then in April of of this year, at 86 years of age, Earl, Earl Fincher responded to the call of our church to make room in his heart for more people. And he did so by signing up, 86 years old, by signing up to serve on our greeter team. And less than two weeks before he died, he was at his post, in a scooter, at the equipping hall entrance, making people feel welcomed as they came for worship.
1: Earl's hardest service, well, it marked his entire life.
12: But folks, this is not just something that Earl had learned to do in his old age. As a younger man, when Pine Lake was located on Spillway Road, as pastor said many times he would take his lawnmower up to the church, and for years he mowed the grass at the church. He was known by the children there as the candy man as they knew that he had some sweet treats in his pocket, and whenever they came to church, he would always bless them with some candy. And I've thought a lot about the way that Earl Fincher served. And it occurred to me that there were two qualities of his life, and there are going to have to be two qualities of any person's life who is going to be devoted to serving others. Quality number one is he has surrendered. He has surrendered. I remember the story of when King David was about to die and he was about to hand the kingdom over to his son Solomon. The last words, some of the last instructions that David gave to Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 were this, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. To serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind implies that you've already surrendered to God, to let him lead your life. And so I asked Earl on Tuesday morning Earl, when did you open your heart to Jesus? When did you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And Earl shared with me, it happened when he was about junior high school age. And he told me that he had turned from his sin, and he had trusted Christ as his Savior, and he had surrendered his his life to Him. Folks, that was about 73 years ago when Earl committed his life to Jesus Christ. And so if you do anything for 73 years, chances are you're going to get pretty good at it.
1: Chef's share is the second quality Earl had that helped him serve others.
12: But there was a second quality needed if you're going to serve others, and that is selflessness. A selflessness about you. Serving others doesn't always happen when it's convenient for you. Serving others doesn't always fit in with your time schedule or when you think it ought to take place. 1 Peter 4.10 reminds us to use whatever gift we have received to serve others. Whatever gift the Holy Spirit has given us, we're to use that gift to employ it in service to other people. And to do this requires an attitude that says, put others first. Karen shared with me just the other day that she could never remember a single time in her life when she needed her daddy. And she let him know, and he wasn't on his way to help her. He was always making sure that he did everything he could to serve and to bless his family. He was a hard worker. Jordan, his oldest granddaughter, shared this. She said, in her 29 years, her granddaddy showed up at every recital every ball game or anything his grandkids were involved in. And then it didn't stop with that generation. His great-grandkids can say the same thing of him. Just about a week before he died when he was so sick, Earl was sitting at the ballpark cheering his Joshua on in his baseball game. Selflessness.
1: He finished off with what Earl would have desired for those at his service.
12: In a very real sense, Earl didn't want this day to happen. He said, just let UMC come and pick up my body and let that be done. He didn't want to have this gathering and I told the family, this isn't for him, this is for you. But I believe that if some way Earl could speak to us right now he would say this, don't make a fuss about me. Tell everyone about my Jesus. He's the one who made my life worth living. You see, Earl knew the joy of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that would be Earl's desire for you today. So I close. And as I close, I'd like to read the scripture the family chose for today. They sent this to me in a text on Friday, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the two verses that they chose on the screen, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Everything that Earl did, every way that he ever served, every gift he ever gave, every project he ever tackled, it wasn't Earl. It was the power of God working through him.
1: And there you have it, Earl Fincher, just a guy next door, but not really. Surrender and selflessness, hard work, and always showing up, always being there for the kids then the grandkids then the great-grandkids. This is Our American Stories, Earl Fincher's story.